Welcome to Move Like This, brought to you by the Accounting Move Project and sponsored by Moss Adams and Sapro. On this podcast, we share ideas and hear from guests about how they find, retain, develop, and advance women and other underrepresented groups in their accounting firms. Now, on to our guest. Hello, everyone, and thank you for being here for this episode of Move Like This. I am excited to talk to Jen Kreider today. She is the CEO of the Pennsylvania Institute of CPAs. Thank you so much for being here today, Jen. Bonnie, thanks so much for having me. Excited to have our discussion. I absolutely love it when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody just in the profession who has great experience and interesting things to say. So very excited about you being here today, Jen. But first... I want to congratulate you on being the first woman to lead PICPA in its 125-year history, a role that you took on two years ago after serving as the organization's COO and CFO. So tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and how it led to this prestigious role. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an honor and a privilege to be the CEO of PICPA. We're one of the largest state societies in the country. And I'll walk you through my background because I think it's such such a great example of where I never could have planned it, but each of the experiences along the way set me up so well for the role that I have today, as is often the case. So I got my accounting degree and I'm a CPA by background. So I was in practice for a long time before I joined the PICPA. Uh, I started uh, as an intern with a regional firm just outside of Philadelphia while I was studying accounting. While I was doing my internship, I kind of thought, huh, I really like this. I'm starting to get it and, and it's making some sense to me. So I ended up staying at that firm from the time that I was a sophomore in college, getting my accounting degree for the next 15 years, you know, worked part-time after my internship while I was finishing school and uh, went to work for the firm full-time after that, all the way up to senior manager. So I was at the firm a long time and, and saw the firm through a lot of different changes and twists and turns. When I started, you know, as an intern and, and right after graduating from college, the firm was maybe 100 people, give or take, maybe a little smaller. And it was this really close-knit firm with this really wonderful culture where we would all sit in the lunchroom and have dinner together during busy season and different games and activities during, during tax season and stuff like that. It, it was a fantastic start in the profession for me personally, that had I gone to a much bigger firm to start with, just based on my personality, I don't know that I would have stuck with it as long because I felt like I had a home there and I had people that were looking out for me and I felt very connected and engaged with my firm. And I'm sure that's a a huge part of why I stayed for so long. So like I said, I was there for about 15 years. And during that time, the firm grew and changed a lot from a regional firm through two different mergers to today, it's it's Eisner Amper, a top, I don't know, 20 firm uh, around the world at this point. So as my career progressed, the firm grew and, you know, went from knowing everybody in the office to being one of, at the time I left, I think it was maybe 1300 people or something. And I always tried to see the opportunity in those changes uh, instead of getting frustrated around what changed or what we left behind. I always, I always found so much opportunity each time the firm changed. Uh, so for me, truly, those mergers were 
incredible in terms of opportunities because I got colleagues to work with in other offices or different client experiences, all of those things made it a, a really rich uh, experience. Early in my career, when the firm was small, everybody did everything, but then I began to specialize as the firm grew and I progressed in my career. So I, I'm an auditor by background and even today still think of myself as an auditor in some ways. And as the firm grew, I began to specialize not just in audits, but audits of nonprofit organizations. So I did a lot of work with nonprofits in the Philadelphia marketplace, a lot of single audit work and things like that. So pretty specialized by the time I left the firm. And so in 2015, after about 15 years at the firm, a good friend sent me the job description for the CFO at PICPA. And she said to me, I know you're not looking to leave public accounting. And, and it was true, I wasn't. But she said, this opportunity lines up so well with your experience and your background. Will you do me a favor and just go check it out, please? And I think I said no at first, because again, I wasn't planning on leaving public, but she was a good friend and she kept pestering me like, like good friends do uh, when they see something that they know is right for you before you know it yourself. So finally, long story short, I went into the interview and came into PICPA as the chief financial officer. I did that for a couple of years and then added on chief operating officer. Uh, so for most of my time at PICPA, I was that CFO, COO combination. And while that was never on my plan, when I got into that role, I thought, wow, this is really fascinating to have responsibility for the financial elements of the business and be able to use all of my financial acumen, but then to combine it with the operational because, you know, in our organization, they're inextricably linked. So loved that role, did that role for a while. And then two years ago, as the, the predecessor CEO retired, uh, they tapped me to lead the organization and I became CEO at that point. I love the fact that you have the specialty in nonprofits specifically, mm -hmm. because that obviously has to be an advantage in your role now. I love the fact that, you know, you were brought in as the CFO and also, you know, they saw, obviously saw your skills and saw your ability and decided that you were going to be the next leader of the mm -hmm. organization. I, I love it. Yeah, it's a, it, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity and one that I am, you know, each day when I come to work, I try to put on that practitioner hat and I think about all of those days that I was in practice and what would I have needed from PICPA or what would I have hoped that PICPA could do for me. So while we are a nonprofit organization, I think of our, I, I think of PICPA as really a very entrepreneurial organization, much more than a nonprofit because we are kind of rethinking that answer, right? What do CPAs need from an organization like ours? And, you know, you know the profession well, you see this every day. It's changing so quickly that the answer to that question of what do CPAs need is changing pretty fast. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. From minute to minute, almost, it seems lately. Yes. <laughs> Well, additionally, you are the CEO of the Pennsylvania CPA Foundation, mm -hmm. whose mission is to inspire students to pursue careers in accounting and provide educational, motivational, and financial supports to those working to attain the CPA credential. So I imagine working so closely with students gives you a unique perspective on why Fewer young people are pursuing accounting degrees, a concern for the entire profession that I hear about a lot in conversations with firms. So can you talk about what you're hearing from students and 
what individuals and firms can do to encourage more young people to enter accounting? Yeah, Bonnie, I hear about this one a lot too. I feel like some days it's all I talk about and rightly so. This is really top of mind for everybody. So there's a couple of things I'm hearing from students and there's a couple of things that I think firms can do to support this. But, you know, interacting with students is one of my favorite parts of the role. First of all, the the energy and the perspectives they bring to our profession give me so much hope for the future. So I, I always try to keep that top of mind. But when we look at the data, the students tell us that there are really kind of two factors that influence their decision. So we're about to publish some research coming out in the next couple of weeks, uh, research that we've done here at PICPA and with our CPA foundation. And we talked to college students, both those that had chosen accounting as a major, so you know those that had already chosen the profession, and we talked to business school students who you know, either haven't chosen accounting or haven't yet, because we wanted to really understand what's, what's the difference maker there. And as we talked to those students, we found that it was about equally weighted among two things. First of all, the time and the cost to become licensed. And then second of all, their perceptions about what works like once you're in the profession. So we talked so much about the time and the cost of licensure it's definitely half the problem and it's a really big focus, obviously across the profession right now. But the the other half of the issue that I think we're maybe not focusing enough time and energy on right now is making our firms places that people want to go to start their career, to build their career, to have a really long and successful career. I think that there's a lot we can do on both sides of that. So when we think about the time and the cost of licensure, Uh, We're doing a lot of things within our CPA foundation to support students. Uh, We're giving out uh, about $165,000 of scholarships each year for college students pursuing uh, accounting as their major and and CPA credential. We're helping with scholarships for exam review and things like that. We're also trying to find innovative ways to buy down that time and the cost of the 150 hours of education. This one's very much a hot topic for people. So we'll set aside for a moment the question of is 150 the right answer or the wrong answer, because there's a lot of kind of legislative complexity that goes with that question. Because it's legislatively complex, either way, there's no short-term kind of quick fixes there. So instead, we're very focused on what can we do today very practically from a common sense perspective to help alleviate that pressure. So we're piloting here in Pennsylvania, a partnership with an organization called Outlier to get uh, intro to financial accounting classes into high schools across the state so that those high school students get college credit uh, when they complete the class. So those high school students are leaving high school with a college transcript of some accounting credits that they can immediately take and apply toward the 150 hours of education. Likewise, we're talking to a lot of firms and universities across the state to explore work and learn models. So, you know, how could somebody graduate with 120 credit hours of bachelor's degree in accounting? And then how could they get 30 credits of learning that goes on the transcript, so fits within the framework that exists today, either by working in a firm or by doing some work and some learning together? I think here in Pennsylvania, we've got a lot of flexibility Uh, to come up with those models. And as I talk to my colleagues at other state societies, many states also have similar flexibility. So I think we'll see across the country this kind of apprenticeship or work and learn model emerge as a leading solution 
on that time and cost of licensure issue that is so critical right now. I think great things to come there. And then as we look at the firm side of things, sort of that other half of the coin, I said a few moments ago, firms have to make themselves an employer of choice and a place that somebody wants to be. The definition of those things has changed really drastically. So I think that there's a lot that firms can do there, but the first thing to do is to recognize that the definition of employer of choice has changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. And that's obviously one of the things that we dig into every year with the move report research. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see what those firms that really do seem to be attracting people and retaining people are creating mm-hmm. completely different looking firms. The days of, well, I had to do this when I was your age, therefore you need to do it too, are gone. And if you if you are still trying to live in that model and force students and young, you know, associates and seniors into that, they have a lot of opportunity to go somewhere else. And mm-hmm. they could be working for a firm that's 2000 miles away mm-hmm. uh, from home because so many people are completely open to that hundred um, percent remote model. So yeah, it's interesting how, and, and this year, especially we talked about the, kind of the whole career firm sustainability thing where it's not a top down, this is what you're going to do sort of scenario. It's a conversation. It's a negotiation. It is, Mm -hmm. this is what I want to do with my career. This is the time I have to do the work that needs to get done. So how are we going to create a model that makes sure that clients are taken care of, but yet the people are not forced into hours or responsibilities or a way of working that they, that's just not sustainable for them or not interesting to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the firms that are willing to engage in that dialogue, like you're saying, are really quickly outperforming their competitors because those conversations, if you're really going to make good on those kinds of changes, allowing somebody to craft their career plan while trying to balance that with the needs of the firm, it really requires business model change within the firm. And it really requires things like different metrics to measure performance and outcomes and things like that. As as somebody that completed a timesheet for a very long time and was measured by billable hours and realization and utilization and things like that, I think we're really beginning to see all of that change so much for firms. And it's hard to throw those models out. It feels very risky and it feels, I imagine, in some ways foolish because the model has worked so well for so long. But I think that firms are really being forced to recognize, okay, I know that that worked so well for so long and firms have been reaching record levels of profitability, except especially in the last few years. But those that are looking ahead and paying attention are recognizing, okay, all of those things are true and we've been making more money than ever, but that's not going to keep us moving in the right direction in the future. Yeah. And with Gen Z and even I would say some of the younger millennials, money isn't the motivating factor that it was before for Mm -hmm. boomers and my Gen X generation here. Yeah. Everybody wants to be paid. Everybody wants to have, you know, make a good living and live a comfortable life, but it is not, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. You're, we need you to work till 11 o'clock every night during busy season and we'll pay you whatever amount. And they're like, no, I need to see my kids. I need to, my life. Yeah. I see a lot of change happening. And I think what 
I think we're going to see even more change coming up in the next few years because it's mm-hmm. going to have to happen as the current partnership groups start to retire. And it's a yep. different leadership model. Absolutely. I completely agree that money's not everything. I think money is table stakes. It's got to be good and it's got to be competitive. And the professionals will know really quickly if it's not gone are the days where all of that is confidential. Uh, but I think equally important to the generations coming into the workforce now are work that has meaning, work that has impact and work that is interesting. And guess what? Our profession has a really great story to tell on those things. I think that those are opportunities that firms often don't leverage enough. CPAs power, trust, growth, and opportunity. Like who else can say that? You know what I mean? (laughs) And I think that that resonates so well with younger generations coming in. So if we talk about that more than I worked 80 hours when I was a senior, I think we'll get a really different take on our profession. And I think people will see a way to connect into what we do because Mm -hmm. the, the great news is technology is doing all of the lower level work now. So if somebody connects in with kind of the meaning of the work, they can get to the really interesting work much sooner. Absolutely. So moving on to another topic, because I think we could talk about this all day long. Across the professions, firms are losing nearly half of their women between senior manager and partner level. And this has been the case for decades. And so there are Obviously, there are a variety of factors that come into this, but a large part is the role of partner is simply not appealing or something that many women, particularly younger ones, feel that they can take on or that they want to take on. So what are you seeing in the profession in terms of women moving into leadership as one that has done so? And what do you think firms can do to stem the tide of women leaving and finally change this statistic that's been around forever? Yeah, this is a great question. And one that I'm so passionate about helping the profession to answer because I was one of those people. I left as a senior manager. And for me, my situation is not the same as everybody's. For me, it wasn't really about the workload and balancing work and life. It was just about finding a really fantastic opportunity. But I think that it really comes down to firms listening, like really listening and being committed to providing solutions. So that's going to mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, but it's really hard to balance all of the things, whether we're talking about men or women, moving into that partnership level at firms today, it is so hard because I know just as many guys that are fantastic dads that are juggling all the same things, right? So I think the answer in supporting women lies in, okay, what do you need? What can you commit to? What are your goals? And then the firm's really listening and and backing that up with action. As we're seeing leadership transitions, I think we're seeing just that kind of general, like generational expectation of, well, I did it this way, so you have to do it this way. It's really fading away. Mm-hmm. And so the great opportunity in that is with new leadership, you've got opportunities to rethink the model. Again, it comes down to business model. So I see a lot of firms experimenting with things like partners that work a part-time or a reduced schedule. I see firms experimenting a lot with flexibility and remote work and things like that and building a culture where it's okay to put your kids events on your calendar and say, Hey, I'm signing off to go do these things. And the things that I owe you, you're going to have at this date and time. So all of those things are really just about the firm being intentional and building the culture and following through on that stuff. 
uh, because there are solutions to all of this. None of this is unsolvable. It just comes down to shifting the business model to allow for lots of different paths to leadership. And I think that women are going to be the, the great beneficiaries of that. And I also think they're going to be the great leaders in those solutions. I think so too. And I think as more women move into partnership roles and, you know, C-level roles, depending on how the firm is structured, they're going to be the ones that create those. And, you know, I know I always, uh, it's always one of those things that not all men, not all women kind of scenario, but it is more women take on more responsibility for the home and the family and all of that. And I absolutely am fascinated by the whole part-time partnership model. And that is one of the focuses of this year's report was we talked to firms that have set up that sort of model. And a lot of firms are more than happy to work with individuals one-on-one to create that sort of scenario, but don't put it out there as a policy. So what happens is there'll be people that don't know that flexibility exists wind up leaving because they don't think that they have that negotiating room. And then the firm loses all that institutional knowledge. So one of the things that we're really doing is encouraging firms, like if you can be flexible like this, and frankly, everybody should be able to be at least somewhat flexible, then this is something you should be singing from the rooftops and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. letting people know that, yes, this is an option and this is how it'll be structured. And you're 70% of everything. You don't just chop off, say, business development and call that a part-time role, it kind of needs to be structured throughout so that you're not put at a disadvantage when and if you do come back full-time. But yeah, I think that is going to be a, a real opportunity for a lot of firms to both attract and retain women in leadership. Definitely, definitely. It just goes back to business model change again, because for so many you know, decades and decades, firms were built in a way where once you were a partner, that was a lifetime commitment and it looked the same way for everybody. And, and now that definition of partner just has to be more flexible with a lot of off-ramps and on-ramps. And that could be because of children. That could be because of aging parents. That could be because of a lot of different reasons, but it's almost fundamental. Like, oh my goodness, that, that model for 125 years, again, recognizing that it doesn't work and that could be a good thing. You know, there's there's opportunity there. Yes, absolutely. So you talk to a whole lot of firms, obviously, in your role. And I'd love to know some kind of truly innovative services or policies or approaches that you've seen firms implementing successfully lately that are out there. Yeah. So I love the chance to talk to firms and firm leaders and and understand what they're doing. I think some of the most innovative work I'm seeing right now is is around the area of workload compression. So regardless of where the firm is in the profession and what type of work they do, uh, workload compression is typically an issue unless it is only, you know, say a, a bookkeeping or an outsourced CFO practice. Anybody else is going to have those highs and lows of really busy periods. And it's one of those things that deter people from joining the profession. And it's one of those things that drive people out of the profession pretty quickly in their career. So a lot of firms are interested in solving for this. And I think that there's two ways that I'm seeing them do that. Technology is the first. And then changing 
kind of the, the economics of the firm is the second way that I'm seeing them do that. So we've already talked about technology and I think that can take over a lot of the lower level work so that much earlier in career, professionals can get to the interesting stuff. And, and kind of the side benefit of that is that if more work is automated and advanced technologies are leveraged, it really does help solve for workload compression because you're just doing the analysis, you're doing the strategy, you're doing the client interaction, the relationship, all of those things that CPAs do when I said CPAs power, trust, growth, and opportunity, right? So I think technology is a big part of that answer. And I think the firms that are under-investing in technology are the ones that are feeling the pain of workload compression the most. Beyond that, I, I do think firms are looking at economics, right? We're all smart enough to understand that if we hired more people, the work would be more evenly distributed. But that traditional pyramid shape of a firm really kind of gave you the number of entry-level spots to hire. It was pretty formulaic. Well, now technology is changing the base of that pyramid in a big way. Offshoring and outsourcing is changing the base of that pyramid in a big way. Lots of, you know, lots of different things are disrupting the bottom of that pyramid. So if we reimagine the economics of the firm, how can we have a really big midsection of our pyramid where we've got, you know, skilled professionals, maybe they've grown up through the firm, maybe they've come in laterally from industry and, and other companies. But if we have a bigger group there and less at the bottom of the pyramid, it naturally spreads the work out over more people. Both of these things, by the way, the, the investment in people and the investment in technology require a lot of capital. And so that's really a decision of the, the partners or the owners or the leaders of the firm. You know, do we want to make those investments? But I would suggest they're worthwhile investments to make. No, I think they are. And I think part of that question too is depending on the size of your firm, if that's not an investment you can make, are you then an acquisition target? I do think over time, those that can't make that investment or decide not to for some reason, mm -hmm. I don't know how sustainable they're going to be for the long term. Mm -hmm. I love small firms. My other hat is marketing and I work with small firms around the country, but it's a matter of kind of deciding what you want your future to be. Yeah. And I do think many firms are at that inflection point right now. You're mm -hmm. right. So outside of that, what are some other trends that you're seeing in the profession? I mean, anything else that would unique or interesting that you're seeing and what would be your top two to three pieces of advice for firms as we're moving into 2024 already? Yeah. I, you know, as I look to 2024, so much of my thinking is around these business model change elements that, that we have talked through here. So uh, really my advice to firms is very much invest in technology and invest in your people, because that is what will pay dividends going into this next year. And I think that that's true, regardless of the path forward for the firm, whether the firm intends to kind of, we've got a niche or we've got a geography and we're going to serve that really well whether the firm intends to grow, whether the firm intends to be an acquisition target, whether the firm intends to be an acquirer, you know, any of those paths, you're going to be well served by investing in people and technology, because the requirements for technology are not going to slow down. And the requirements to invest in people are not going to slow down. When you look at the demographics, we're going to be in a talent crunch for the foreseeable future. You know, that's not going to go away. And so I think that these two things, investing in people and investing in technology, 
are the only way to solve for that. We're doing a lot of work to support building a strong pipeline of talent into the profession. And rightly so, we should. But this is not a one and done sort of thing. The demographics show we're going to be a talent crunch for a while. So we've got to not only build permanently a strong pipeline into the profession, but we also have to permanently build, you know, organizations that people want to join and stay with. If we don't solve for retention, then it's all for naught. Yeah. And it's interesting in a time when a lot of, you know, older partners have put off retirement for a variety of reasons. It's a really difficult financial decision for a lot of firms because, okay, we need to buy out these partners and make good on the promises to them. But yet we also need to spend a lot of money on our firm and technology and people and just creating this culture where people want to stay. So I don't envy those that are running firms right now because there's just so many moving parts and it's hard to address all of them at once. That's so true. That's so true. It's it's a lot of tough calls and and significant trade-offs. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. So I have some fun questions I want to ask just, uh, you know, to lighten the mood a little bit. And I just <laughs> kind of end with. That's um, great. Let's do it because we've been covering some really heavy topics. Yeah, right? we have, man. So when you were five years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? I don't know that there was a specific thing I wanted to be. I loved to read as a child. So I probably just wanted to be whatever would allow me to sit and read a book. And it's so funny now that I have this role, like I'm such a natural introvert. I think that 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 reveals the level of introvert that I am. And it's, it's so funny that I'm in such an extrovert job now. (laughs) And it's funny because I think we're all somewhere on the spectrum because I test as a pretty high extrovert, but I love nothing more than sitting down with a good book and coffee and just kind of just cocooning or something like that. So exactly. I haven't lost that trait. That's for sure. No, especially as it gets cold, I want to be under a blanket with a book. Uh, It's just kind of my happy place. Totally agree. (laughs) So if you were given a chance to travel anywhere for free, didn't have to worry about time off, budget, none of it, where would you go and why? Yeah, so I have uh, young children and my son is 11. He's the older one and my daughter is seven. So he has just begun to think about travel and, and you know, all of a sudden he's got all of these kind of questions and places that he wants to go, which is so cool because I love to travel. And, and so the thought of seeing a place through his eyes is really exciting to me. Uh, so he's been talking a lot about Rome because I think they've been studying kind of those ancient cultures and civilizations. So we've been talking a lot about that. And that one has gone on our list. I would love to take him to Rome and go tour all of the the history and eat gelato and all of the amazing pasta and and all of it. It would be great. Yes. Having been to Rome right before the pandemic hit, actually, the the end of 2019, I completely support that. And (laughs) I love the idea of seeing just seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. I have a goddaughter who is just turned 16 in July. And for her 12th birthday and 16th birthday, 12th, we went to New York City. And Mm -hmm. 16th, we went to Montreal. And just absolutely love kind of seeing the world and seeing her discover things. And Mm -hmm. still, I I mean, she lives in a very, very small town in Alabama. So these are cities are not something she experiences on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. But 
I it still is one of my proudest moments that day two in New York, she's hailing her own cab. I'm like, all right, I did right here on this one. <laughs> That's great. That's well, so funny. You know, good for her. And finally, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Uh, it would probably be unlimited energy because I find that to be my constraint these days. There's so much I want to do professionally and, and in support of the CPA profession. And I wish I had unlimited energy to tackle all of those things on that list. Obviously, with my family and my kids and all of the relationships in my personal life, too. So I find that managing the energy is the hard part for me, not necessarily the time management or sort of the calendar of it, but just the energy. That is the first time I've heard that one. And I'm kind of shocked that it is because I, I started this in March of 2023 this year. And yeah, I think we could all use a little bit more energy. I have to tell you, I was with a lot of friends that are in my age group and we were talking over Thanksgiving about how like, oh my gosh, how we used to do all these things when we were young and, you know, get up and go out at 11 o'clock at night. I, there is no way in this world that would happen now. So right, right, uh, right. let alone all the other things we need energy for. So um, yeah, yeah. well, I may steal your superpower and <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today, Jen. This has been a really interesting conversation and an important one. I think the profession is at a tipping point and there's a lot of things that are going to need to happen to keep it moving in the direction that it wants to go. So um, I really appreciate your input and advice on that and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Bonnie, for the opportunity. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Move Like This, brought to you by the Accounting Move Project and sponsored by Moss Adams and SAPRO. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at accountingmoveproject.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues too. I'm your host, Bonnie Buell-Russick, and until next time, keep moving forward.